welcome to a small, medium, at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate stories that heal. I want to start today by thanking all our listeners for subscribing, commenting, sharing, and just supporting us in general. Thanks for being there, and we hope you enjoy all the shows we have. So today, we're going to have a return guest who brought a very special guest with him to join in our show today. So I'm just gonna tell you a little bit about David Blank, who's been with us before. David Blank is a credentialed mindfulness-based psychedelic therapist and co-founder of Soul Connection Journeys, a psychedelic guiding and retreat program that combines the transformational power of psychedelic psychedelic plant medicine with nature-based experiences. His mission is to empower people to heal and connect with who they are so that they can live the life they desire and deserve. And he's brought a guest with him today, which is our very well-known Tommy Chong. Tommy Chong is an actor, comedian, writer, and director, and best known from the legendary Cheech and Chong comedy team. He has appeared in 11 comedy albums, 35 movies, and 25 live shows. Today, he's also known as a cannabis rights activist, musician, destroyer of cancer, bodybuilder, and creator of Tommy Chong Nice Dreams CBD products. We want to welcome Tommy and David here today. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gail. It's wonderful to have you here. And I have some questions that I'm going to get to in just a few minutes, but I have to start with a few of my own personal things always. I wanted to share uh, my neighbor, and and in fact, it's someone who I I, I chose to rent to, was uh, sent away to prison for being a pot smuggler. And uh, when he was released from prison, we were happy to provide him a home to live in. And the other day when he heard I was going to have you on my show, he brought this down and I was so blown away because this is a pristine, <laughs> pristine with the paper inside. With the paper. <laughs> and look how beautiful you and Cheech oh. are looking. Oh my God, blood hunks. Uh, cheek to cheek. I just figure it's a blast from the past, but I really want <laughs> to share it. And the fact that it came from a Vietnam veteran I thought was also a very special thing to share. Very special, yeah. And the other thing I want to say about our Vietnam veteran is that um, a little while ago, I ordered all the different products that you had to offer on your site. And him being on a limited um, income can't afford these sort of things, but I gave him the products. Also to my husband, who's in a lot of pain, ready for hip surgery and for myself, and I just wanna give you a report before we go into those things later, that each one of us experienced good sleep, seven (sighs) straight hours of sleep. Isn't that nice? Besides PTSD, he's also getting from Vietnam War, which makes it hard for him to sleep at night for the dreams. This has helped him because he's also just gotten over um, cancer, throat cancer. And the, the, this, this has given him sleep. He came back like with a big smile. I slept through the night. I mean, yeah. there's just no words to say how wonderful it is when you can find something that truly helps somebody in pain. Yeah, and it's healthy. And it's healthy. Yeah. And I, I have just, I, 
you know, I'm just doing a couple of my stories and then I'm going only to the two of you talking. So the one I want to share about is the fact that medical marijuana exists. And I wanted to tell you that I never believed it. I always thought that the reason medical marijuana was around was because they were using it to get it legalized. So I figured, oh, it's not really. I've just been getting high since I'm 12, you know, and it's my ally, my friend. I love it. Well, I was helping take care of Anita Hoffman. And I don't know if you remember Abby Hoffman. Yeah, I know Abby. I know. Okay. Well, you know, they sent joints around the country to people in envelopes, hundreds and hundreds of joints. And I met her uh, at a rave that Timothy Leary had invited us to go to. And we became friends that day and she ended up getting uh, breast cancer. So I went to her house, I would take her for her radiation treatment. And when I took her for the radiation treatment, I had all this, she wanted me to cook all this Jewish food and I had all this food I made for her, but then she didn't want to eat any food and she wouldn't smoke any pot. And I was like shocked that the woman who spread the joints everywhere wasn't smoking. So I said to her, Anita, just, just, just have a few hits of my homegrown. I said, just a few hits. And that's when I saw medical marijuana right before my very eyes. Yeah. The yeah. woman went from half dead to not wanting to eat, to sitting up and saying, oh, bring me the cabbage salad. I'll have the matzo ball soup and a couple of those ruggala too. And yeah. she just became alive again. Yep. And I left her house and I said, holy shit, there really is medical marijuana. Totally. And that's when I learned it. And I've done nothing but provide cookies and things to people to help them when they're in chemotherapy. Yeah. Or radiation. And now you have these wonderful products who can help these people. So I don't have to bake. They can just go online. Yeah. <laughs> and they can yeah. try these things. Yeah. We got gummies. We got stripes. I'll show you, this is this is what I do now, because I smoke, still smoke, yeah, more out of just my own pleasure, you know, than, yeah. than anything, but uh, I, I had this company make these, uh, these strips. Are those the ones you like, put on your tongue? Yeah, yeah, and, and what it is, they, they got about... I don't know, 100 milligrams of, uh, yeah, 100. And uh, no coughing, nothing. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I just want to take a look at it. Here, I got one for you, too. I'm sorry I'm not there. Can you pass me one through the computer? I'll take one for you. So they're, each strip is 10 milligrams, and there's 100 milligrams. There's 10 in the pack. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's 10 milligrams, yeah. Well, we've been enjoying these that you have, uh, yeah, cool. uh, the Amichang gummies. Oh, yeah, the gummies are great. The thing is, they're so tasty. I yeah. mean, they're just like a real, they're just like eating a regular gummy. I know, I know, they're they're all good. Delicious. And, and what I love about it is that you don't get, get the hangover, <coughs> you know, <coughs> excuse me. But, Still get the cough. Yeah, I'm glad they get the cough. <laughs> But I'm like Tommy. I still love to have my smoke every day. <laughs> oh, no, the the smell it, it gets me. I, I do cameos now, and so on the cameo they say, you know, wish my dad a happy birthday. And can you smoke while you're doing that? And I, oh, <laughs> okay, I'll do it. Then I'll smoke it. And what, what I do now, I, I make these uh, little joint holders. Uh, these these little. Oh, is that cute? 
And so what it is, what I found out, you know, I, I, I got a little carving tool and I, so I carved the faces of them and everything. But what it's good, you light up, you know how you light a joint and you don't want to smoke the whole joint. And you don't, and you're putting it out, it gets messy and everything else. So what I do now, I do, if I light up, I kind of just set it there and it doesn't spill and it eventually goes out on its own. And they're, uh, they're like little NFTs. Oh, so you can actually smoke through the bottom of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's what you do. Right, so you're, there's a hole in the bottom so you can smoke through it. Is that bone or wood or? That's just wood. Just wood. Beautiful. Just wood. A little scrap. Uh, like I found a, a branch, uh, oak oak tree uh, fell in front of me and it was like a sign from God. So I, I took it home and I carved a few of, of the oaks. What I do now, I've always been a carver, wood carver. Mm -hmm. And and uh, even when I was in, in prison, I, I, I found, uh, they, they found a, a place for me in the garden, you know, and, and so I could go every day, I could go to the garden because I was age exempt of, of working. So I didn't have to work. And I, and I had a little station there, a little hut, you know, oh, and, and I, I, and I just carve and make uh they found some clay for me and I make bongs out of the clay, you know, <laughs> then I eventually uh, made enough that I wanted to fire them up. And I found out they treated me like a big celebrity in prison. And That's so, why. and so I got to the point where I could talk to the warden of the big prison, you know, just meet him. And he was, he'd wipe his hand and shake my hand and say, oh, or, you know, treated me like a real celebrity, you know, not like a, I was never treated like a prisoner. And so I asked him, I heard that they had a kiln stored away, you know, and so I asked him if he could get the kiln out for me. And, and of course, he lied to me. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll see what we can do. Never, never happened. You know? <laughs> yeah. this, this brings me to the other story. I feel very connected to you right this minute, because the other thing I wanted to talk about was prison. No, oh, yeah. Because after listening to your prison story, I, I, I have to share these prison stories because you, Timothy Leary, and my father. First of all, the day I met Timothy Leary was the day that he found out that um, the doctors had told him, you know, he only had a few years to live and that his cancer was not, you know, curable or whatever. And I met him that day with my husband, who was his very dear friend. And for whatever reason, when we went back to his house, he was rubbing my thigh and telling us all these stories of prison. And he showed a, a, a photograph of the actual cell he was in that he saw in an article somewhere. And he said the same thing you said and the same thing my father said. Prison was the best thing that happened for me at that time. Yeah. I used it to do so many things. Timothy said it was the first time he had like a rest where he could focus on writing, focus on doing these things. Yep. And, he, and he learned that he said he could get any drug he wanted in prison, yep. but he couldn't understand why you couldn't get alcohol. And so he decided to make his own alcohol at night in the, in the commissary or whatever. In sure. The yep. Yep. And he gave alcohol to the prisoners and that night, violence and 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 things all broke out. And he really said it's a Republican drug. I realized right then and there why they do not give them alcohol. 
and, and it was positive. And my dad <clears throat> was arrested almost exactly on the same kind of count as you. My dad and mom were car thieves in New York. My dad was very proud of stealing Cadillacs. And he would steal these Cadillacs and he was supposed to resell them, but he never did. He just liked collecting them. He kept them. So he was keeping them, right? So he had a whole collection of all these stolen cars that he was going to sell one day. And he, the, the FBI came and approached him because someone reported all these Cadillacs. Why are there all these Cadillacs? So my dad calls this friend of his and says, we got to get rid of all the cars right now, but don't take anything out of state lines. Make sure everything stays here in New York. He doesn't do that. The guy finds some car dealership in another state. I don't remember Pennsylvania or wherever uh -oh. it was. Now it's a federal crime. Exactly. And when the FBI came to my father, he wasn't going to admit that he was the car thief because he was like a two-man operation. Well, they had to change how they register cars in New York because of my father's ability to do all this. <laughs> and the FBI came in and said, if you do not admit to what you've done here in this crime, I will bring in your parents. And his parents were, you know, Jewish immigrants who did hardly spoke English. And he knew that wouldn't happen. So he decided to confess to everything then and there to protect them and his family. And he, he like you, went to prison with Wilhelm Reich and the Rosenbergs. And you got to learn all these other things about what really happens inside a prison. Yeah. And he had his spiritual revolution there where he had spirits come to see him and he changed his life. And he became a vegetarian in prison, a spiritual man. He studied religions and he became a better man from his almost two oh, years yeah. yeah, that's what happened with me. I, you know, I, I was always spiritually connected you know I, I got connected really young in my life and and, and it kept me you know uh, it got me where I am right now you know today uh, and there was no never a confusion with me I, I, I was um, when I when I was real young I was my my mom got TB uh, and and she was you know, uh, quarantine for five years. We oh. never hugged her or saw her. Oh. We waved to her, you know, from the ground floor. She was on the second floor. Um, and then, then I got pleurisy. So I ended up in the hospital. And I think too, that I, they also put me in the hospital too. Uh, that, that's what they did back in the day because they, they never really had uh, places to put people that that needed more than anything they just needed a home you know and and so even though i had pleurisy i i went to the hospital and was treated like uh, like a king for for a couple of years in fact that's where you know my first consciousness of of uh of humanity you know being alone uh, at that age, you know, no, no parent telling you what to do or, or feeding you or anything, you know, th these are nurses and doctors, uh, and, and mostly nurses. And, and, and what I had, I had to get a needle in my butt, sometimes two or three needles, of almost for a year, you know, I got stuck, but they, they cured the pleurisy or whatever it was. And then I went from there right into the Salvation Army home which was like a, the, uh, an orphanage. But the good news, or what I liked about it, was that 
the Salvation Army, they're they're like militant Christians, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so what they would, yeah, they were militant. They were the army. They're the Salvation Army. Right. And during the war, you know, they they were they had religious songs like "Onward, Christian Soldiers." marching off to war but what they did before you had breakfast they would do a church service and being that young i got caught up in 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 the whole thing you know uh the the singing the hymns and and all that and i loved it now when it came to breakfast time uh, being uh, the youngest kid on the uh, at the table i never got fed <laughs> <laughs> like all the bigger kids would eat everything good <clears throat> and the younger kids like myself we had what was that whatever was left left you know and that's the way it was i was taken from the hospital by my dad who had some war wounds he was in the second world war and so he when he dropped me off at the home i had a stack of comic books and a stack of new clothes and and after the first day, I never saw the comic books or the clothes again, you know, <laughs> they went to some other, other place and I got handed, you know, the home clothes and, and that was it. But what I learned being alone, you know, being incarcerated alone, I, I had this, I guess it was, a, it's a spiritual connection, you know, that I always had because uh, of my, you know, the, the, the hymns and everything else. And, and when you're in prison, that's the only thing you really have, God, is yourself. Yeah. And, and if you discover God, like I did, <clears throat> that early, then you're not alone. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I was always protected. And, and I knew that. But I, I, there was no reason for me I, I never learned how to lie, for instance. I never learned how to steal. <clears throat> in fact, it was the opposite. I learned not to, to lie, and I learned not to uh, steal. Uh, or, and, and because lying really is stealing. You know, when you lie, and, and you're, you're, you're stealing the truth from somebody, you know, and, and for the most part, it could be yourself. Learning all that, when I got out of the home and went home to, to my house, to our first house, and then I found out just a little while ago, I'm uh, uh, almost 10% native. Now, when I was born, I was born, my dad's Chinese, my mom's uh, what I thought was uh, Scotch-Irish, but they forgot to put the native in there. Ah. She's 25% native. My grandmother was 50%. She was half, a uh, half breed. And, and they always said, they always lied and said, she, my grandmother who committed suicide when, uh, when my mother was like four or five years old. Uh, so I never met her, but she was half native. And uh, I'm finding out all this now. And so when we, our first house that we lived in had, uh, outdoor plumbing, <laughs> you know, outhouse. <laughs> we had to carry water. We had to carry the wood. It was a little cabin. And it was probably, to me, the first Christmas we spent there was probably the nicest 
and the poorest, no, no presents under the tree, but we had a tree that we cut down ourselves. My dad cut it and my mother made the homemade decorations and we made homemade decorations for, for the top, for that little room we had. And then she baked, that was the greatest thing. She baked uh, the cookies because my mother, when she was a, a child, she was, she wasn't, she was taken out of school and she's, she was, uh, made to be a domestic she was like a little slave for an english uh, family and so she learned how to cook english style uh, bakery bakery goods and bread and she wasn't that good of a cook you know she's a, a more of an artist and everything else but she was so beautiful and uh, and so so spiritually inclined you know uh and, and she's native, like I said, she, she's, she's of the ground, she's of the earth. And my dad being Chinese, you know, he, he was never home. He was always, he was a gambler as well. And he became a truck driver uh, as a thing. But what I learned early, early in my life, I learned the power of prayer because I would hear my parents talking, you know, and we're riding in the back of a, uh, my dad's, he always had a car, uh, the, the cheapest car you could find on the road. In fact, the car I remember when I was that age, in the back seat, you could look down and you could see the ground because there was no, <laughs> there <was> no floorboards. <laughs> you could see the ground moving uh, underneath yeah. the car. And that, that's, that was the kind of uh, vehicle my dad afforded. So I would pray that my dad got a job that paid $100 a a week, I guess it was. To me, that was a fortune. Within days, my dad got a job that paid more than $100 a week. And I didn't say anything. Of course, you know, who's going to listen to the, I wasn't the, my dad, I had an older brother and a younger sister. I was that kid in the middle that no one really listened to anyway. But I managed with what I knew uh, about God, I managed uh, to make our life. And I know it was, I, I know it was my connection uh, because, uh, because of the way things fell together, you know. And then we had some like seven years of the, an incredible life in the little cabin. And then it it got better. And then my dad finally uh, used his war credentials and got a uh, a wartime house in the city. And and our and our favorite thing to do was take long baths <laughs> in a bathtub to the point where, come on, you've been in there all day. Come on, <laughs> someone else has to use the bathroom. You know, the one bathroom in the house, the wartime house. Oh man, but my life, and, and, I, and I tell people all the time, it was because I learned the power of prayer. And, and, and there's, there's no ritual involved. You know, it's very simple. It's very simple. I, I happen to agree with you. I, I make, like, I, I, I just lost a very close relative this week. And uh, I believe in the power of prayer. And what I do is, I make what I call prayer candles. 
and I give every member of the family, just whoever, you know, the, the wife or the husband and whoever the children are, and I, I make them and I, I bless them with shamanic intent because I've been initiated into, as a Mongolian shaman to Mongolian shamanism. And I send it to them and I say, whenever you want to connect to the spirit of the person that you've lost, just light the candle, close your eyes and connect with them. Yeah. And this is what this is for. As this is, you know, like people get freaked out when they hear the word prayer and they, they have some image like you got to be at a church kneeling down on something or whatever crazy thing comes to their mind. Prayer is just done from the heart and the soul of yourself and the mind and is then shared into the universe. It's and a thought. It's a thought and it goes that's out. That's all. That's all. When, when they start talking about, you know, I'm tired of thoughts and prayers. But when you think about it, again, think about it, that's all we really have. That's all we have. We don't have anything else. And, and that thought is so powerful. I tell people all the time, the most powerful thought is the thought of God. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to say God. You don't have to. You just have to think. Have your mind go to God. And he will perfect that which concerns you. Well, and keep your mind on God. That's what, that's what praying without ceasing really means: is thinking about God full time, twenty four seven. I try to do that, but I do it out of. Uh, well, I found out that a lot of mystics, my age and 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 older, they've got one. We all got one thing in common. You know what that is. What? We all got that cosmic giggle. Remember, <laughs> remember Timothy? Remember yes. Timothy's cosmic giggle? Yes. They all have that. I met Timothy. Let me tell you my Timothy story. Okay. He, he's, he, was, he was kind of like in the throes of, you know, passing on and that. And, and so he was, uh, he had this idea of, uh, we got to get into a spaceship. We got to find an, another earth we you know that's what we got to do <clears throat> and, and and i told tim i said tim we're already on a spaceship <laughs> and not only that but we're on the best spaceship you could find you don't have to wear any costume or have to be cramped or anything i said not only we can go to bed we can wake up and we're on a spaceship we're going through space right now at the speed of 1036 miles an hour and and and, and tim says to me oh you're just like john lennon <laughs> <laughs> I said, excuse me. He says, you just sound just like John Lennon. Oh, Jesus. What am I going to? He says, haven't you read my book? <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> I got compared to John Lennon. Can you imagine? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, on this psychedelic note, I think I'd like to propose a question that I have here from. Um, from, from, from the, the idea of us gathering together to talk about David's psychedelic uh, journeying. So my question is, really, I was gonna ask David this question first, because I have no idea, what is cannabis-assisted psychedelic therapy and how did you get involved in this? Yeah, so I, 
so I got involved because, um, you know, growing up, I suffered from pretty severe depression my whole life and really struggled. And even though I lived this really fantastic life traveling all over the world, like we've talked about and, you know, being a guide and sharing these beautiful journeys with people and really seeing that transform other people's lives. And, but I, I, you know, I'd wake up every day and I was kind of like a struggle to get myself going and, and never felt comfortable. And I tried all different options and diets and meditations and all kinds of things and never really, you know, felt complete. Um, and so through my stepniece taking her life and her searching in psychedelics and my family kind of looking at that, I got introduced to the idea of psychedelic therapy and went through some pretty uh, wonderful psychedelic journeys with a, a guide um, that really transformed my life and really helped me to connect to my joy, um, to see that I, you know, I, I, I guess I felt like I wasn't a good person. Um, I just felt really alone um, and unworthy. And I remember after the first journey with, with my guide sitting, looking off into this beautiful valley and, and just seeing this incredible view that of course was even enhanced because of the, the impact of the psychedelics on the light and everything. It was just, but I've seen so many views like that in my life, driving around a corner in Utah and looking at a view and like feeling my heart just open and just like, Oh man, this is so beautiful. And so I was, I was sitting there and I, and I thought to myself, you know what? I am a good person. And the thing that brought that to me was I thought about my wife, Claudia, who you know, right? And, and she is like an angel on earth. I mean, she's the most loving and special and unique, beautiful, connected person. And I, I must be a good person because <laughs> this angel would not be with me. God would not have put this angel with me if I wasn't you know, and didn't want me to embrace this. And um, so I, I, you know, kept doing some work and I, I really, with the help of a bunch of different nutrition and body work and somatic therapy, and really just came into myself, really discovered who I was, really found myself connecting to, to love and, you know, seeing this and my, my life was very much impacted by my father's life and his father's life, who was also a World War II veteran who had PTSD from the war and, and you know, experienced a lot of horrible things. Um, and, you know, recently I've, I received a family history of my family that not probably unlike your own was a, like seven, eight generations before World War II fleeing Eastern Europe through the 17 and 1800s because of the pogroms. And so I like I had this genetic multi-generational history of trauma. And so anyways, through all this work, I realized there's so many people out there struggling. There's so many people that are suffering. My depression was treatment resistant. And, and what it really came clear to me was that um, I was listening to a podcast one day and, and uh, the gentleman, the, somebody said, you know, depressants aren't a happy pill. They're just, and for most people, they're just a not miserable pill. And they just give you the ability to get through the day. And what I see this psychedelic work did was it got me off of the antidepressants 
and it got me in a safe way to a place where I could find and connect to that joy on my own. And that is a happy pill. And, you know, I was talking to Tommy earlier, like I wake up every day happy. I called my father the other day because he helped me and supported me through this process. And I said, I just want you to know I'm happy. And, and I get to spend every day with my favorite person in the whole world, my wife, Claudia. And I'm so grateful. And so the, the, the reason I got involved in this is because there are so many people out there that are struggling to all different degrees that aren't getting the help they need for whatever reason, whether it's not available to them or what is available isn't effective. Uh, and my guide, I told him, I wanna create a space where people can come and do this work. And I said, I don't wanna be the guide because I didn't want this person who had this incredible gift to think I was comparing my ability or myself to him. And he turned it around on me and he said, why not? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you've, you've already been doing it for 30 years. <laughs> You're just using travel to transform people's lives. Now you can incorporate this into it. And this is what the world needs, a connection with the nature along with this healing. And so, you know, I, I let it mull around and I went and talked to my wife about it. And she said, oh, yeah, you would be wonderful at this, you know, and you can really help people. And I said, well, how do I, you know, really get into this? I mean, I've learned so much in the past year working with you. How do I really, you know, learn this? Because it's most important to me that I'm helping people and that I'm keeping people safe. And he referred me to a program in Colorado called um, the Psychedelic Sitter School. And what he said was, he said, I think this is probably in some ways the best program available in the U.S. because it uses cannabis as a psychedelic. And that means that you're going to be using it on a regular basis in your training. Whereas if you're training with psilocybin, ketamine, MDMA, you may not ever get to actually experience it. And you want to experience it in order to know where people are. And so he said, whether you stay with cannabis or you go on to use other medicines or combinations, cannabis is, it, this is really a, a found, fantastic program. Um, and so I got involved in that program and I started studying and I started doing this work with people. And um, I was just blown away by how it impacts people. It's so, it's so cool, you know? And uh, I talked to a woman today who is a, a death doula and we got in touch about working with her clients with this to help people who are transitioning to come to terms with things and to, make that connection to a divine or to a spiritual or to an understanding that they're connected to all things and that the end is not the end, it's just a transition. And uh, so when I was talking to her, I, I, I was able to share a couple of, of just quotes that people that I've worked with have told me. Um, and you know, one was a woman who was diagnosed with a, a, a incurable with Parkinson's about five or six years ago, a very, very dear friend of mine who I love tremendously, uh, like a sister. And it was very devastating, obviously, for her. And we did a journey. And afterwards, she said, this is the first time I felt at peace since my diagnosis five years ago. I bet. I want to do this every week for the rest of my life. And I was in tears. I mean, I was in tears. I was, I was because I, I was, 
I had spent in one of my own journeys about an hour just crying because I was so, I felt so helpless. How can I support this woman who I love so dearly? And so when she said that to me, I was like, fuck yeah, God loves me. <laughs> Life is awesome. I have to say, I, I know about microdosing for therapy, but I had never heard of cannabis for, I, I mean, for yes, for the things I talked about, radiation, chemo, body pains, the sleep, appetite increasing, but I had not thought about it in this vein. And I'm, 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 I'm sure that the reason I'm saying and talking to you today is because I've smoked for the last 50, 60 years. And I feel that it's what's kept me from going over into the deep ends of depressions and things like this. But I never thought about it. It was like my way of life. So now to think about organizing it into a way where a person could actually come to you and have a guided transformational experience and combining it with nature, I think would be a very healing uh, uh, adventure for someone to do besides just going and seeing beautiful places. Well, it's, it's his Jewish heritage. <laughs> Does he have I'm, serious. I'm serious. There, there is a reason the Jews were called the chosen people. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is that they were the first, the very first to realize the invisible God. Mm -hmm. They were the first. It was a shepherd. They, they figured, you know, the guys, he's a shepherd. He's looking up at the, at the wonders of the universe at night, you know, the, the Milky Way and everything else. And, and he realized the fact that he could take this in, all this beauty in, he, he realized that there is this power, this higher power that, that directed his head. That happened to me when I was uh, going to Sunday school. By the way, uh, Sunday school, uh, like I have some Jewish friends, you know, when I mention, you know, the Christian or the Sunday school, they, they, I, I, sometimes I, I, they're, they're not devout by no means, but I get this sort of like, you know, he's a Christian. <laughs> You got to realize the Christianity is a religion where they worship a Jew. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they worship a Jew to the point where he got executed. They raised him to be God, not just a Jew. He's a, the son of God. And that's what the Christians to this day, I mean, they changed the look a little bit, you know, make it a little more like John Wayne than, than, than uh, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. But, <laughs> but the, the, the truth was, it was the Jews that discovered the power of the unseen, the one God. Everything goes to one. And, 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 and it was their, their brother that ended up going uh abram you know he he says uh, well yeah i kind of go with that but i want to do my own thing you know <laughs> and so he so he's got and now we got muslims worshiping the same god everybody worships the same god because there's only one god and, and so no matter what, what you call it presbyterian or uh, whatever all of them all of the names names mean nothing it's and and it's and the thing is God doesn't have a name. God is. 
and and in fact uh, again the jews they, they you know the raiders of the lost ark the name was so so powerful that if you knew mm -hmm. the name it would blow up kill or whatever mm -hmm. you know the the truth is there's these obelisks that they were they found in in egypt this is when britain ruled the the world you know and Britain went into Egypt and they, they just tore all the antiquities, you know, they took it out of Egypt and they shipped them around. And so there's an obelisk in New York Park, City Park, and there's an obelisk in the London Museum, uh, uh, Natural Museum in London, and they're all over the world. Well, at the top of the obelisk, there's the word Yahweh is written there. It's, it's the word of God. Mm -hmm. Translated, it, mean, it says, I am. That's what Yahweh says, I am. Interesting. I am, you are, mm -hmm. you are, we're all an I am. So what this ancient religious whatever come up with the fact that they discovered the power of one, which we are all. We are so unique that we've always been here. You've always been here. You've always been here in one form or another. Mm -hmm. Eternal souls. Mm -hmm. We are eternal beings. And so what we're going through are these tribal rituals that in order to organize tribes Okay, you need a tribal leader and so on, <clears throat> you know, someone to direct and, and, you know, the ancients, uh, uh, the indigenous people always had their medicine man. He wasn't really a leader, but he was in charge of the, the psychedelic programs, the, med the one that would take care of that, you know, maybe the, the, the chief would be the one that would help him build a boat or, or go to war, you know, decide who's going to do what. He always had the patriarch. He always had the father. And, and that's the way the human experience is. But we're here to experience the human experience. That's why we're, that's why we're here in this, this little slice of, of eternity. Our parentheses in eternity, that's what our life is. And when we when we're finished with this life, we might continue, or we might go on another journey. But whatever it is, we'll always be around the people that we're around now, because that's our gang. And and in one form or another, we'll always be with each other. Now, these are this. I can tell you. I can. We can talk about it on this program because it's devoted to this this subject. But for the most part. I have to learn, as a mystic, I have to learn to keep my mouth shut, shut the fuck up, because it's spoiler alert. That's why you can't tell people that you're on the right path when they're on the wrong path. And by being on the wrong path, again, you know, they, the, the smartest people around us always said, you only learn by, with your mistakes. You never learn with winning. You learn by losing. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, that's what, when we come to this earth, we have problems, mountains to climb, problems to solve, because that's why we're here. Why? 
to evolve ourselves so we learn ourselves because eventually each one of us will have our own universes to to take care of i i love that you brought up the the we are one yeah because it's something everyone forgets yeah and i was very thrilled to experience it when i was sitting in the 10th row center at woodstock and I was 14 years old, and it was the most conditions of everything you would imagine there to be a negative thing with no gas, no food, no water, no bathrooms. And of course, we happened to come with a, a car full of everything to share with everyone. And it was a complete, it was the most feeling of we are one I have ever experienced in my Absolutely. life. Absolutely. And, and when, when they try to organize that again, it didn't happen. Never Actually, happened. This is the you, you symbol can't. that this is the symbol that <laughs> yeah. I wore at Woodstock. Is it? Oh, I love yes. that. I and love that. it's even actually it's it's been immortalized in this book, um, Woodstock: Fifty Years of Peace and Music. So it has my photos that I took there of Country Joe, and it was the first roll of film I'd ever taken. But ordained. Yes, but they yeah, it was very it. ordained. Your whole. Our whole experiences. There's my necklace in the back. I love it. What a peace sign. is my quote, and it's next to the we are one. So I don't know if you can see that. Yep, yep. Yep, but I had, I had and, and the man who wrote the book said that I was the muse that helped him finish it. And I was so, I was, I was just so honored by these people. And then we all became friends. But it was like 50 years later, I was re-experiencing that open connection, love, heart thing that happened. And this book put me in there and brought me these wonderful people. And Isn't that great? Was, it was great. And so, that was like a moment in our history. It's a moment in history. And there I get to say how we are one and what it felt like. I guess yeah. I could read it here for you. It says right in front to the left of me, a guy came up and painted we are one. It was painted across the fence, right to the left of the stage, right in front of the Woodstock stage. And I thought that those three words captured what that event was. And I've never felt that kind of experience like that ever again. Yeah. Not Except, with 100,000 people. I felt we are one, but not with 400,000 people. <laughs> Except except when you think about it, our, our memories. Isn't, yeah. isn't that the most beautiful thing? Yes, you have the ability to to anchor to go back to an to like a, a specific point through smell, sound, memory, whatever. Yes. And anchor to that and go right back into that emotion and that feeling of connection. Yeah, yeah. it's it's an amazing. The, the, power. the truth is the pain and the, the sorrow. You can only feel it on, on this plane that we live in. Mm -hmm. You see. Because in the spiritual world, there's no want, need, or desire. Or judgment. There's just there's just love. Mm -hmm. But you can only do that for so long. You need to be where there's pain because pain means growth. I tell people now, you know, people spend a lot of money to go to a gym, a bodybuilding gym. And when you think about what you're doing, you're walking into a place where you're going to tear the shit out of your body. 
<laughs> you're going to rip muscle, you're going to tear, and you're going to make every organ in your body wake up. Well, what the fuck? You know, yeah. what's going on? And you're creating all this violence. And the reason you're doing that is so that when it grows back, it grows back stronger. Mm -hmm. So we know what we're doing with our physical bodies. And if we apply the same thing to our spiritual self, see, we're not, we're, first of all, we're not supposed to know everything. We're supposed to, more than anything, we're supposed to learn and then teach when, it, when the time's appropriate. But mm -hmm. people have to learn on their own. Mm -hmm. That's why it's hard for me as, a, as a, someone that's been there that knows <clears throat> to feel sorry for anybody that's going through anything. Because other than uh, uh, the, 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 the pain of sadness when, when something goes, but we got a little, uh, I got a little uh, almost two-year-old uh, granddaughter and I, we, we watch her walk and she teeters when she's learning how to walk, she falls, but she doesn't cry. She's a tough one. She's <laughs> Indonesian. She, she, she gets up and almost like brushes it off and then she motors by but you see her going through life feeling that physical pain that we live in, you know, and then learning what not to do. You don't have to tell her too many times, don't touch that or don't do this. She knows. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's our, our life. We're supposed to feel pain. We're supposed to feel sorrow. We're supposed to be depressed. Why? Because that means we have a chance to be the opposite of depressed we can then now we can feel joy because if you don't feel the pain you don't know what it's like to be without pain yeah you know the other thing that's interesting in the in the psychedelic work is that um when you when you have pain and what you learn to do and that's where the role of the guide or the sitter comes in they're not the healer they're not doing the work the work is being done by the person who's journeying and the medicine that they're using and their own inner intelligence, their own inner healing. But it's instinctive for people to move away from pain. And what it takes to heal is to lean into it, right? So you, if, you're, if you're experiencing anxiety, if you're experiencing paranoia, um, you know, Daniel McQueen that, that I study with, he always says, you know, a symptom is something that's halfway out. And if you lean into it, gently and explore it and feel it and what does it feel like in my body what is it emotionally what am i experiencing and as we learn in lean into it it starts to kind of dissolve that symptom and we get to what's underneath and where is that pain really coming from where is that fear or that anxiety or that emotion and sometimes it's physical things in our body that are connected to emotions where if you get to that and you start to release it you realize that the event or the trauma or the experience wasn't really as you perceived it. Suddenly people have these releases where pain that they've had in their body for years disappears. Yeah. So it's really just leaning into stuff. And this is where I want to say thank you to people like you, Tommy, and all the other comedians out there, because I feel that laughter is the healing part of, 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 go, of facing the pain. I've often been told people like, how did you survive your childhood and the crazy life you had, Gail? And I said, 
I would never change any of it because all of the pains I went through has taught me compassion and things about others that I can approach them in a different way because I have an understanding from the pains that we, we or I have gone through. And I would never change it for the world because no. it makes me who I am today. And I, and I only feel nothing but love to the people who maybe inflicted unusual, you know, traumatic things to me, but I don't feel anything to them, but anything but love back. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's so true. It's, the yogas say, stay on your own towel. You know, <laughs> you know when, you're, when you're doing yoga, yogi, uh, you know, exercises, they always say, you know, Bikrams, they always say, stay on your own towel. In other words, this is your universe. This is your universe. And you see other people struggling away. Well, that's that's their problem. Stay on your own towel. And 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 and, and that's how you help the world. That's how that this is what I learned, you know. I I I, I and, and then when I see people now, you know, like, like our country, the way it's stumbling through everything. I, I got now I, because of my prison time and everything else. I I, I had this ability to, to see the end. I can see what, what's what's coming down the pike, uh, and and uh, uh, and the thing is, you can't do this with even anybody close to you. Your wife, especially wife. You know, my wife has. She's like. I think it's a natural thing to be the opposite of the husband. You know, <laughs> you know, like you say, it's it's hot out. And they, well, not as hot as it was yesterday. <laughs> you know, you know, and 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 you know, it's it's a, it's a balanced thing, wow. and, and I appreciate it, and, and I I I see it, and I enjoy it. But when when you see people going through horrendous moves, you know, like like cancer or the brain tumors or or stuff like that there yeah that's when when you go to god and you know you know that these are eternal creatures and whatever they're going through it's what was they were meant to go through it was meant to happen and and the best you can do is to comfort those that are left you know and 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 just try to help put a smile somewhere, you know, because like you said about humor. Thank you for listening to part one of Tommy Chong and David Blank. For more stories and laughter, join us for part two.